We are in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. So if you have your Bibles, please open them up. I hope that you bring your Bible to church and that you have it with you as we study through these things. Your, your Bible is one of the most important tools that you carry through this life. And it's great to be able to make some little notes or to see in the scripture that's before you some of the things that we'll look up and, and study together. So we're in 1 Corinthians 7. This chapter has been a wonderful exposition of some of the details of the covenant of marriage and how as people who put their faith and trust in Jesus, how are we supposed to live out our faithfulness to God's covenant of marriage? Um, we're going to be looking at verses 25 through 31 today. So if you have your scriptures, you can follow along as I read out loud, starting in verse 25. Now concerning the betrothed, I have no command from the Lord, but I give my judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. I think that in view of the present distress, it is good for a person to remain as he is. Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be free. Are you free from a wife? Do not seek a wife. But if you do marry, you've not sinned. And if a betrothed woman marries, she has not sinned. Yet those who marry will have worldly troubles. And I would spare you that. This is what I mean, brothers. The appointed time has grown very short. From now on, let those who have wives live as though they have none. And those who mourn as though who were not mourning. And those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing. And those who buy as though they had no goods. And those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it. For the present form of this world is passing away. Would you bow your heads with me and let's have a word of prayer. Thanking the Lord for our time together in reflection on the good things that he has preserved for his church. Father, you do such an undeniably good job of taking care of your people. And so we come together this morning and we expect to feast upon the wonderful nutrients of your word as we think about the good things that you have set aside for us, these wonderful truths that dictate how your church is to live, how your people are to walk in the pattern of your son, Jesus Christ. We know that these words have a preservative power to us, God, that they, they help us to remain free from sin that they guide us out of dark places and into the light. They help us to be strong. We have weak flesh as human beings. There are limits to what we can do and what we can know. And so when we come to your word, there's a sense of strength that we, we draw from here, Lord, because it is eternal. It is your sure proclamation to your saints. So let us take care, Lord God, how we build our lives that you have given to us, that we might desire Christ to be the one and only foundation upon which every good part of us is, is founded. We thank you, Lord, for the forgiveness that is ours when we step wrongly and when we stray from the path, Lord God. But we are so very grateful that you have promised to preserve us and to give us the endurance we need to strive through every challenge and to overcome. And so, Lord God, we are happy to be yours. We are uh, expectant that the things that we learn today will have great benefit to our walk with you and to our closeness to our Savior. Holy Spirit, guide us through as we learn together in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. So in this, the seventh chapter of 1 Corinthians, Paul has been building a biblical view of the marriage covenant for his brothers and sisters in that town. Here he takes a moment to address a very narrow set of circumstances. He's speaking to those who are betrothed 
to be married. Now, we use the word in our culture more often engaged to be married. Um, that means they've promised to go ahead with a marriage ceremony that will officially kick off their lifelong covenantal union together. Uh, but in light of what some were teaching in Corinth about celibacy, and in light of Paul's own endorsement of single living in this very letter that we're reading, uh, saying that it was a legitimate option and a very good way of life if, for those who are called to it and could handle it, these almost married Christians, these betrothed Christians, are now unsure if it is best to go through with it and to actually get married. Would it be better for them to remain unmarried and give their attention to serving Jesus, even though they had promised to enter into the covenant of marriage with one another? That's the question that Paul seeks to answer. Now, the key to Paul's advice lies in the statements that he makes about the more general nature of following Christ in verses 29 through 31, the end of our passage. So we're going to begin by examining these words. Here he recommends the Corinthians that the appointed time has grown very short. The appointed time has grown very short. Now, Paul is not explicit about what he means by this phrase, the time has grown very short. He doesn't spell it out for us detail by detail. But by considering the context, we can be confident that Paul is reminding the Corinthians that even then, even 2,000 years ago, that the people of God were living in what we would call, properly, the end times. Verse 26, he says, because of this present conflict, meaning that there is trial and tribulation. And if we look back through the history of the church, there really never was a time when there wasn't trial and tribulation, at least in some area of the world, concerning God's people and their perseverance. In verse 31, it says, for the present form of this world is passing away. It doesn't say it will pass away. It says it is currently in the process of passing away. So the time had grown short, and with each passing day, the time grows shorter between now and the day when Jesus returns. We are right now living in the end times. Now, some might push back against that. They might say, well, aren't the end times the things that happen right before the very end, right before Jesus comes back to judge the world and consummate his kingdom? Now, we have to remember, church, that God's grasp of time is much different than our grasp of time. The passage that Ross read for us to begin our service today, that call to worship passage, explains why we can be living in the end times now, even if God were to so choose to bring the very end, to return uh, in the flesh many, many years from now. This would still be considered the end times. So let's read that passage in part, uh, verses 8 through 10 of 2 Peter, and then I'll explain why that's relevant to what we're doing today in 1 Corinthians 7. 2 Peter 3, 8 through 10. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed." Now, this passage in 2 Peter is clearly about the day of the Lord. While every day is the Lord's day, and we will rejoice and be glad in it, for He is Lord over every single day, when the Bible refers specifically to the Lord's day or the day of the Lord, 
it is pointing to a very specific historical event that's going to represent the final chapter of God's patience towards our sin. God will not delay His justice forever. Sin is a corruption of God's good creation. And we can be certain that because by nature God is a just and holy God, because of His righteousness, He will not allow sin and corruption to continue unchecked. He will not do that. He will surely judge the wicked and He will do so with perfection. He's going to put an end to all the rebellion, to all the threats against His kingdom, He will cast Satan and his fallen angels into the lake of fire and all who have rejected Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior will likewise have to suffer the the just punishment of their rebelliousness against God to whom they owe everything. And so Peter wants his readers to see three things in this passage that is a complement to what we're learning in 1 Corinthians 7. First of all, he wants us to see that God is not bound by time. Time is in fact bound by God. God is not under this framework where he must operate in an orderly second-by-second manner. We are bound by time, aren't we? We live under this framework that we cannot break free from. I cannot rewind time and go back to some mistake I made before and undo it or try it over again. I cannot skip the hardship that I am in right now to get to a future event that is more profitable for me. I, I am under the framework of time. God has placed me in the existence of living day by day, second by second. But God does not experience the passing of minutes and hours the same way that we do. While time is an unavoidable framework for us, it has no control over Him. Because it is not not controlling God, God has every right to speak about time in ways that we cannot. Let me kind of illustrate this for you. If Arnold Schwarzenegger was to walk up to you and say, I need your help. I want you to come and help me lift this box. Don't worry, the box is not too heavy. It would probably sound a lot cooler than I just did it, right? Um, I'm not good at accents. But we would also have to think for a second, what constitutes not very heavy to Arnold Schwarzenegger probably isn't the same thing that constitutes not very heavy for you and me, right? The man can lift a building, practically. And so, in like ways, when When God speaks about time, he's talking about it from his eternal perspective and not from our temporary perspective. One eon, a whole epoch of time, can be like the blink of an eye to God who exists outside of the framework of time. A a God who has personally witnessed the passing of every single second of existence that's ever happened. He has seen it all. Now that doesn't mean that God is out of touch or that he's saying things to us, not realizing that we can't understand them. Rather, his unconventional descriptions of time are are meant to be an invitation to us to recognize that God himself is master over time, that we might have awe and wonder over his uniqueness and his holiness. So it is in some sense relative to God, time is. Church, be in awe and wonder, for, for God sees time so differently than we can. A thousand years can be as insignificant to God as a single day. And then Peter urges us to apply that grand knowledge to our view of the second coming of Jesus. It might seem like God is taking a long time to fulfill his promise to return for the church. But Peter wants us to be careful not to mistake God's patience with negligence. The fact that Jesus has not returned for us does not mean that he hasn't gotten his business together. 
It doesn't mean that he has not paid attention to us or that he has forgotten about those who he's promised to redeem. Every day that Jesus does not return, how many thousands of people are coming to know him in a saving way? If you think about the world and about how the gospel message is being spread throughout the world, every day that Christ delays, knees are bowing, tongues are confessing. People who lived in darkness and brokenness are submitting themselves to the gospel truth. The seed of life is being planted in their heart and their heart is proving to be good soil and they are becoming brothers and sisters in our very family. It might seem as though negative circumstances are dominating the world right now, but the light of the gospel shines. Even in the darkest of circumstances, I have no doubt that 10 years from now, if Jesus has not yet come back, right? Because we don't know when he's coming back. 10 years from now, many Christians will look back at this strange season that we're in right now. And many will say, as tough as it was to live through that time, I am so glad I did. Because God used that very struggle to reveal my weakness to me. He used that hardship and that difficulty to help me to see that I am but a sinner. And that no matter how hard I try to control my circumstances and to handle my business, I cannot do it apart from Christ. There will be people 10 years from now who will look back and say, that's when the Lord broke down my heart of stone and gave me a heart of flesh and made me new. So as time marches on, no matter the circumstances, the gospel is reaping a steady harvest of souls for the glory of God. Jesus is not forgetful. He's not lazy. He has not made a promise that is too big for him to keep. It may seem to us like the return of Jesus is taking a long time. But there is much that Christ would accomplish in the relatively brief period between his ascension to heaven, where he sits right now at the right hand of the Father, and his return, where he will punish sin once and for all. There is for Peter a practical implication to this truth, and it is spelled out for us in verse 10. We as created beings are not meant to know when Christ will return. It is God's will to keep this knowledge hidden from us. And this fact is made crystal clear, as, 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 as clear as possible, throughout the New Testament. And yet people still to this day are obsessed with trying to decode the secret. They are convinced that despite the proclamations of Christ, they will be the one who will mathematically figure out when Jesus is going to return. Now it is practically important for us to not know when Jesus will return. As important as the thing that God reveals to us in his scripture are the things that he chooses not to reveal. This word that we preach from is a sufficient word. There is no supplementary appendix that we need to get through life. This is what he has given to us. This is what directs us through. And there's nothing missing from these pages that is essential for our health and well-being in Christ. And so the more we learn to trust this word, the more we rejoice in the things that God has refused to show to us. Because we begin to see that if we had some of the information that he has, it would impact us in a negative way. It is practically important that we don't know when Jesus is going to return. If we were to learn that Jesus was, was coming, but it wasn't going to happen in our lifetime. If we were going to learn that, we, oh no, this isn't the end time. The end times is some hundreds of years from now. How lax would we become in our evangelism? How much would that impact our desire to live holy and pleasing lives to the Lord right now? We would not live with the sense of urgency which should characterize the life of a believer who is ever ready for their master to come home for them. 
If we were to learn that Jesus' return was only a short time away, we might stop living as sojourners in the land. We might stop laboring. We might stop building. We might stop growing families. We might stop loving our communities by making a difference in the land. We might just say, well, forget this. I'm just going to wait for Christ to return for me. I'm not going to do anything else. We see examples of that in the Thessalonian letters, that some were just living off the generosity of the brothers. They, they quit their jobs because, hey, Jesus is coming back anytime. Why would I go to my job? There's no, there's no point in that. God knows our limitations. He knows what knowledge we can handle and what knowledge we cannot. We might see all of that as pointless in light of the greater expectation that it would all change shortly anyway. So our God is very wise to keep that knowledge away from us. It is practically important that we don't know when Jesus is going to return. It is also prophetically impossible that we come to know these things. Jesus has said to us plainly that he will come like a thief in the night. No one will know the day or the hour. So if you figure out, guess what you've just done? You have proven Jesus a false prophet. Congratulations. Is any one of us going to be able to do that? Not one of us can do that. Not one of us will prove Jesus a false prophet. He has declared that we will not know, that it will be startling to all who experience it. So let's not waste our time trying to unravel the code. If God is God, what he said will come to pass. We will not figure it out until it happens. Now these facts are all good to be aware of, but what does that have to do with 1 Corinthians 7? When Paul tells his friends in Corinth that the time is short, he's saying that the clock is ticking. While we don't know what time the end will come, we have been made aware of what the end means, church, and we've been put on notice that it can happen at any time. So those who follow Christ cannot live oblivious to the end as the majority of the Gentiles in the Roman culture were doing. To the lost, the end is such a vague mystery that it makes little sense to order one's life around an event that they cannot understand and then they cannot see. But oh, how different it is for the saint, for the one who has been redeemed by Christ. We don't look to the future as some amorphous, mysterious black void. For those in Christ, the future is not a jumbled mess of maybes. We know what lies ahead. And even if some of the details have not been revealed completely to us, we know enough. We know that what has been revealed to us changes everything about how we see life now, doesn't it? When Paul says that the time is short, he uses a Greek word. This Greek word means to be drawn near. It could be translated in English that time has been compressed. What was once a distant, far-off question mark because of the promises of our Savior has now been brought near to us in a very real sense. It is in our view. We cannot live oblivious to it any longer. And though the judgment that Christ will usher in with his return may or may not be imminent in our lifetime, it is a guaranteed reality for us. And we must adjust our way of living to compensate for our awareness that it will certainly come to pass. Paul intends to help his brothers and sisters in Corinth to see this. The Corinthians were puffed up with knowledge, as we will see shortly, speaking authoritatively in some instances about things that they did not fully understand. They had developed several popular slogans that the people were holding to in Corinth 
that had been brought to light by Paul. He puts their practical theology to the test in this letter. And in some instances, he corrects things that they have been wrongly holding to. In other instances, he upholds some of the truth that is expressed in their Corinthian slogans. For example, Paul has already unraveled their idea that it is somehow holier to remain free from sex altogether. The Corinthians had this idea that sex was somehow intrinsically wrong, which it is not. It is the gift of God to be enjoyed within the confines of the covenant of marriage. And so Paul shows them that it would be a disservice to God if they decided to be celibate even within the covenant of marriage, that they were brought together to love one another, to show affection to one another, and to guard each other from impurity and immorality. So Paul corrects their thinking in that regard. At the same time, Paul also showed clearly that singleness has its advantages. So if you were to have the strength to not be led astray by your eyes or by your, the lusts of your flesh, then to be a single person and to live your whole life out in service to the Lord would have great benefit to the kingdom of God. A summary of Paul's judgments concerning marriage to this point might sound like this. If you're married, stay married. Even if you got saved after you were married to a non-believer and you're in this marriage that now we would call an unequal yoking, stay married. And so much as your partner decides to stay with you, then continue to love them, continue to try to show them the grace of Christ Stay in that marriage. If you're not married and you can stay focused, you're not led astray by the lust of the flesh, then don't get married. Don't bother adding that complexity to your life. Instead, devote yourself to, to serving God, to, to lifting up Christ in every aspect of who you are. Having the freedom of not being tied to a family gives you certain flexibility to do things that other families are not able to do for the glory of your king. But if you're not married and you are tempted sexually, if there is a drive to be with someone, then by all means, do it in a godly way. Pursue marriage. It is better to marry than to burn with passion. But what if you're in a unique gray area where you would happily stay single now that you've learned that there's advantages to that, but you already happen to be betrothed to somebody. You've already in, in, been engaged to a husband or a wife-to-be, and you're just awaiting for that marriage to be finalized. That might seem like a non-issue to us, but we need to understand that betrothal carried a greater significance in the time that Paul was writing than it does today. To the, Jew, the Jewish person, betrothal was the beginning of the legal marriage. So if you were to become engaged to someone, that was the covenant. You had started the covenant. It wasn't fully realized until the wedding night and the consummation of the marriage, but as soon as that promise is made, then your yes needs to be yes and your no needs to be no, even though it had not yet been consummated. To the Gentiles, it kind of depended on which culture you were coming from. Some of those in the, culture, uh, the Gentile culture believed the same as the Jews, that a betrothal was the same as marriage, and others did not. To us today, engagement is a quasi-formal statement of intention, and not a whole lot more than that. It's non-binding. In other words, there's no legal significance to it. You don't change your taxes when you become engaged, right? You don't change your name when you become engaged. You wait and do all that stuff once you've actually gone through with the ceremony. So to go back on an engagement for our common culture today has no real legal consequence to us. The biggest factor might be breaking off an engagement and then losing your deposit at the place you were going to get married at or having to return a wedding ring. So today we, we struggle with understanding what this betrothment really why it really matters. But to the, to the Corinthians, some viewed betrothal itself as a covenant. 
And so they wanted to be very careful that they weren't going to make the wrong move and violate a covenant promise to someone else. So before he speaks to that unique circumstance, Paul issues a a disclaimer up front. In regards to the special circumstances of those who are betrothed, but are considering whether or not it might be better for them to remain single, Paul has no command from the Lord. That's what we read here at the beginning of our passage. And that means that the church had no direct quotation from Jesus regarding the matter. No one had written down one of his sermons speaking about such an instance. But Paul, being led by the Spirit of God, being a full apostle, exposed to Jesus himself, the resurrected Christ had had taught him and had commissioned him, led by the Spirit, Paul is authorized to give instruction on such things. Should the betrothed couple remain unmarried? Should they go through their vows and complete the marriage? Paul advises them that it would be advantageous for them to remain single. This is consistent with his earlier teaching that singleness, if, it, if one can handle the urges of the flesh, has many practical advantages to someone who desires to serve their Lord without compromise, without distraction. If this betrothed couple wish to remain unwed and instead devote themselves to the service of God, then they would not be in sin to do so. In fact, it would be a blessing to both them and to the church. However, Paul wants them to make, take some factors into consideration. He says, I think that in view of this present distress, it is good for a person to remain as he is. Now, what could this present distress be? It bears some influence on Paul's evaluation of the situation. Now, this present distress could be the specific distress that Corinth was going through in this time of upheaval and division that they were dealing with. Remember, in chapter 1 through 3, we spoke about the difficult divisions that were plaguing the church. They were all kind of arguing over who was the better teacher, and there were some doctrinal differences going on. We also are going to read in chapter 11 that they were handling the Lord's table. They were handling communion in such a disrespectful way that God had allowed some of them to fall ill and to even pass away. So there is a spiritual judgment that's going on because this gathering of believers in Corinth was disregarding the law of God. And so some were dying. There was, there was a crisis on their hands. They were losing people. So perhaps that speaks to this present distress that they are under. That may very well play into it. But I think Paul is more likely speaking to the general distress of being a sojourner in a foreign land, of being a believer and therefore holy and set apart in a city of Corinth where basically anything goes. A city where you can do what you want to do, you can get away with sin, and in fact, living immorally and and with covetousness and in an idolatrous way is the norm. To live for Christ would have been very, very different, would, would likely have brought some scorn from your neighbors. In light of these challenges, in light of the difficulties of professing Christ in a place where Most people were ignoring Christ. Paul says, it is good for you to remain single. He says, it is good. He does not say it is necessary, right? Paul is offering wisdom here. He's not offering a command. And so this is actually very unlike so much of Paul's writing. We are used to Paul declaring strong truths of God, giving us imperative commands that we are to follow as the church. But here, Paul is, as a pastoral figure, gently guiding them through and 
making it clear to them that they have some decisions to make on their own, that they must weigh the circumstances, they must consider what wisdom they do have from Christ, and then they must make a choice for themselves whether they are to remain single or to live in a married relationship. They could go either way. If you marry, you do not sin, he says. There is a great degree of Christian liberty in these matters, even for those who had already begun the process of preparing to join themselves to another in marriage. Paul wants them to generally stay in whatever station that they were saved in. Serve where you're planted. But it isn't as if they were absolutely locked into their current circumstances, as Paul preached last week. We're to serve where we're planted, but if Christ so decides to dig us up at the roots and to transfer us to another, plot, uh, another pot, then we should serve and, and, grow bear, and bear good fruit there. Serve wherever God leads you, wherever He takes you. But as with every kind of Christian freedom, we are going to have to deal with the consequences of our decisions. Whatever way we exercise our Christian freedom, there will be fallout from that. Verse 28, yet those who marry will have worldly troubles, and I would spare you of that. The Apostle Paul wants to keep them from unnecessary difficulty and complexion. He wants them to have a carefree life where they can serve the Lord freely without hindrance. Now, there, here's the thing. Consequence-free decisions are a benefit that only the sovereign God enjoys. When God makes a decision, he doesn't have to wonder how things are going to play out. Because in his omniscience, he knows it already. It is written because it is his will. But for us, we're not like that. We're not sovereign. So there are times when we have to look at the lay of the land, and there will be two forks in the road, and we'll have to decide which one we want to take. And there are times when the Lord just graciously allows us to choose a path, one way or the other. But whichever path we take, there will be consequence to it. Being in total control, there is no aspect that is outside of God's force and power. He is never stuck with what he gets. But we do not have the power and the wisdom to accomplish that. If our will in any way opposes God's will, there would be a significant conflict of sovereignties. His sovereignty is always greater. We don't have dominion over ourselves as much as God has dominion over us. So entering into the marriage covenant is an option for these people, but it is a bit of a calculated risk. What kind of anxieties can come with the decision to get married? Well, for one, the stakes are a lot higher. When you join your life to be partnered with somebody else and you promise to walk along their side and to love them without end until this life is done. It kind of reminds me in James of when the brother of Jesus warns that not many of us should become teachers. Why? Because a teacher has influence over others. So if you just think something wrong yourself, that only impacts you. But if you're a teacher, now you're spreading wrong doctrine. You're, you're teaching wrong things to others and you can cause them to stumble. Well, men, if you choose to be a husband and a father, you are choosing to become the teacher of your home. That is now your responsibility. So you have to understand that when you say, I do, you're also saying, I will, to lead your family. In a spiritual sense, they will look to you for guidance. You are the one who is expected to help them to understand the truths of the word of God. That's a great responsibility. It's also a tremendous blessing. But make no mistake about it, it can add complexity to life when you are responsible for the teaching of your little ones, when you are responsible to wash your wife in the sanctifying waters of God's word. 
When you become married, now your financial burdens become more complex, don't they? If I'm a single man and I lose my job, it's not that big of a deal. I can find work somehow. I can scrape together. I can get by. But the anxiety of losing your job when you have three or four little ones at home and a wife who's caring for them and you're supposed to take care of all of them and you've read scripture that says that a man who does not take care of his family is worse than a non-believer, that adds a strain to the heart, doesn't it? So Paul would spare young men from that if possible. Coming under the authority of a fallible human being, ladies, is a difficult challenge. When you say yes to marriage, you're saying yes to allow your husband to lead you. That is God's order for marriage and for the family. So when you say yes to being led, you're putting yourself under the authority of a person who's going to make mistakes, who's not going to lead you perfectly. Are you ready for the challenge of sometimes being torn between doing what your husband says and and doing what you and your heart want to do because you think it's better? These are all things that we have to take into consideration when we enter into the covenant of marriage. When bound by this covenant, there are more variables that personally impact you. If your spouse gets sick and requires great care, it is your responsibility to minister to them and to make sure they get well. And of course, there are opportunity costs to marriage as well. If I'm committed to doing this very specific thing, a covenant lines out curses and blessings, For the rest of life, I'm going to put my energy and attention into caring for you. I will have eyes for no other woman. I will be holy unto you, my wife. Then that means that I don't have the options anymore to just get up and take off and go. If I see something going on in a different part of the world and I say that the Lord's working there, I want to go and do that, I have to consider my wife and my children before I just up and go. I am am giving up opportunities that as a free man I might have. But as a married man, I can't afford to just jump and take So marriage is a valuable option, but it comes with its challenges. Now, there is some great practical uh, benefit from thinking about these things, especially if you're sitting in a chair today listening to God's word and you're in a marriage covenant yourself. If you are believers and you have a spouse, you've got a husband or a wife, and you have struggled, see that the word of God is here affirming that, yes, the marriage covenant is a challenging covenant especially in this season that we've just gone through. Maybe it has been so hard to help your kids learn at distance. You've been taking the role of primary teacher in your kids' lives, which is a great blessing to them, but it adds strain and stress, and so you've been trying to coordinate schedules, and the internet at work is, or at, at home is, is thin, and it's not working the way it should, and it's easy to get raw at each other and to bite each other's heads off. If you've been having a hard time with that kind of a struggle, look at the Word of God and see how it affirms that, yes, brothers and sisters, There are struggles to this covenant. Don't feel like you're the only one who experiences that. Maybe you have lost your job because of this pandemic. Your earning capacity has maybe gone way down. You've been cut in your hours, and so it's a lot more lean financially around the house right now, and so that that has added fear and strain and anxiety. If that is the case, sit next to your spouse right now and know that these are the strains that happen within the covenant of marriage. You're not by yourself. Maybe the fear of the virus has impacted a husband and a wife differently. One sees it as a big threat and the other doesn't see it as much as a threat. So you've been butting heads on how to deal with it, how to handle it. Maybe there's been struggle long before this current season of distress even began. And this has only amplified the things that you hadn't figured out from before. If that is the case, 
your struggles together are not to be seen as evidence that you're not meant to be together or that you're necessarily falling woefully short. This is just what is common to this station in life. The scriptures has made this plain to us today. So knowing that marriage covenants require striving together and requiring endurance, then I want you and your wife to come together after this service, talk to one another, acknowledge that your calling as a married people is hard, give grace to one another, affirm your commitment to work through whatever struggles you have to keep the promises that you have made to one another. Confess your sin to your spouse and forgive. Marriage is not easy, so seek the strength of your Savior together and rejoice that though it is hard, it is one of the ways that God glorifies himself through us. However you exercise your Christian freedom in this matter, do not lose sight of the fact that the appointed time has grown very short. That reality must come to bear on our ever, every decision, friends. There are necessarily practical implications to holding on to an internal perspective, one that trusts in the imminent and potentially soon return of Jesus Christ. And so Paul lays out some of these implications in verses 29 through 31. And this is hard for some to understand, so listen carefully. Let those who have wives live as though they had none. Let those who mourn live as though they were not mourning. Let those who rejoice live as though they were not rejoicing. Let those who buy live as though they are not constrained by the things they possess. Let those who deal with the world live as though they had no dealings with it. What is Paul saying here? At first read, it can be very puzzling. Has Paul, in the course of three verses, totally rewritten all that Scripture has taught us about these fundamentally basic aspects of human life? Do we need to see marriage through a whole new lens? Do we need to think of ownership of property completely differently? Can we even trust when we are happy or sad in life? Let's examine this carefully, friends. Paul opens this distinct section with the phrase, from now on, from now on. That does not seem like a temporary injunction, does it? That sounds like an abiding principle. From this point forward, here is the mindset that you are to have. And so, Really, this opens that wisdom up to apply to not just these couples who are betrothed to one another, but it applies to all of the church. This is an abiding principle for us. Paul's acknowledgement of this present distress that they're experiencing does factor in, but not so much that Paul is giving a specific like niche command to a very narrow audience at one single point in history. His words here are not only to the relevant contemporary Corinthian church, Rather, he's reinforcing for every believer a radically holy and different mindset than what is common among godless men and women. Paul has not told everyone to abandon their posts. That is not what he is saying here. He's simply telling them to approach their station in light of the impending return of Jesus. So look at again at the language of the passage. This is going to be up on the, on the slide for you here. What do you see again and again in that passage? Live as though, mourn as though, rejoice as though, buy as though, and deal with the world as though. So this phrase, as though, indicates that he's not trying to tell them to dissolve all of their current callings. When he says, live as though you have no wife, he's not saying that, just ignore her. Just walk away from that covenant. That would be an exact contradiction to all the things that he has just said affirming the covenant of marriage in the preceding verses. 
So what is he saying here? Live in such a way that you are attempting to do the kind of things that that holy focused and devoted single person can do, but try to do them within the confines of the marriage that you have covenanted in. So you have chosen a path that has more complexity. But because Christ is coming back and the church has been put on this great commission of seeking to share the gospel to the world, you must do everything within your power to be both a good husband and a good evangelist, a good missionary, a good deacon, a good children's church worker, a good servant to the Lord, even though you are focused on your family as well. For those who mourn, does that mean we never shed a tear? No, of course we mourn. But we can't mourn like those who are so focused on the now that tomorrow doesn't really matter to them. This morning is all they see. They're so devastated by this loss because this is all they see and know that this is their whole life upside down. When you know that Christ is coming back and that he has promised you eternity, you mourn, but you mourn in such a way that hope is always present in your life. Hope is always just a little further on. Friends, we've got to think differently about the world that we live in. We cannot be married in such a way that marriage is all that matters to us. Though raising kids is such a huge blessing, and you can see how important that is to us at this church as our little ones are even here in this service with us. And we love to hear their little voices talking. We love to hear the crunch of their Cheerios as they entertain themselves. We love children. But your children cannot be the sum total of your life. If you are called in Christ... There is an eternal component to who you are. You can't get so wrapped up in your sports with your kids and your ballet with your kids and your schooling with your kids that the church just gets pressed into the very smallest corner of your life. We have eternity to live for, friends. Serve the Lord God. Bring your family along as you do. Introduce them to the fact that our lives here as redeemed people is no longer lived simply for our own good, but is lived for the glory of the great name of Christ. When you mourn, you encounter loss, you can weep, but don't mourn like those who are losing everything that they have. You have a God who is returning to make all things right, so your mourning will be abbreviated. Your hurts pale in comparison to the weight of the promises that God has given to you. If you've been getting the prayer chain emails, then you've probably been up to speed with what's been going on with the Ryder family right now. Not only is Sandy having a major surgery on Wednesday where she will have one of her legs amputated, but Eric's mom, Jan, who just lost her husband recently, fell and broke her hip, had to have surgery and is staying at the Ryder's house. She was there to help them out and now she's, she's at home with them but is gonna need to be cared for. Not only that, on Friday, Eric is getting something ready for his car. The engine was running. Someone runs up and tries to steal his car. In, in a split-second decision, Eric tries to stop it from happening, and the guy tries to run him over, literally tries to murder him. He gets drugged down the road. He's covered in road rash right now. He's got a major injury on his head because he fell off the truck as the guy was going around a corner. Praise God he is alive today. They've experienced trauma and stress to an exponential degree. Those without Christ would be looking for a chance to throw in the towel right now, considering all they're going through. But by God's grace, they have an eternal perspective as they mourn, as they are concerned, as they endure. 
they do lament these things that have happened in their lives, but they don't lament as those who have no hope. They go into this surgery with great confidence that whatever God chooses to do, that he is still sovereign and he still loves them. And that there is an eternity that is secure for them. In the same way, it is right for us to rejoice, but not so much that you forget that there is still sin abounding and so there is mourning to do as well. Have a broader understanding of the greater will of God, friends. Think of eternity. The Christian should be open to adapting characteristics of the opposite station of life to which they have been called to. Live in a holy way and set apart and different from the normal patterns of this world. Is a husband to act like a single man? By no means. He's to make every effort to serve the Lord fervently like a single man could while at the same time honoring the Lord in his current situation and the responsibilities of being a dad and a husband. Now what necessitates this shift away from this, this, this shift, rather, in the way that we see our situation. What looming reality has the power to impact these fundamental stations of our lives? The last words of our passage make it clear to us. For the present form of this world, it's passing away. It's not going to be like this forever. Here we have the benefit of just recently studying the book of Ecclesiastes together, church. What was the word that described the nature of life? It is vapor, is it not? It is vanity. And you might recall from those months that we spent in that Old Testament book that that word vapor means it has an appearance of substance, but that it is changing. It is fading away. This world is not our eternal home. And so when we take on this mindset that we don't really belong here, then we'll stop trying to make the most of everything we have here, everything that makes us happy here, everything that makes us comfortable here and instead we'll be really willing to work and to labor for things that have a great eternal significance. Peter again shares the same mindset that Paul does in this matter. The last few verses of that call to worship, since all these things are thus to be dissolved, they are fading away, right? They are passing away. What sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and goodness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God? because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Friends, as we leave this place today, let us leave it rejoicing in the present realities that God has given to us, but also very much so aware of the future realities that are coming at us fast. There is a time when Christ will come with a shout, the trumpet will sound and every heartache and every struggle and trial and every consequence of humanly sin will at once be undone. You look forward to that day? I look forward to that day. But in the meantime, I'm also looking forward to every day that God gives us to worship him here as holy and set apart vessels for his glory. Just bow with me as we pray. God, we praise you and thank you for the great goodness of your word. Thank you for the Apostle Paul who had a pastoral heart and was willing to dig down deep into the details of very specific experience of Christians. He wanted them to have instruction. He didn't want them wondering. And so I pray, Lord God, that we would see the 
important resource that your word is to us, Lord, that if we have these freedoms, we can only hope to apply them in ways that glorify you if we're living according to the wisdom your word contains. So give us direction, Lord God. Light our path with the word in such a way that we will not stumble and fall, that we will not be tripped up by worldly, man-made doctrines, but that we will seek the true Holy Spirit interpretation of your texts. Help us, Lord God, to be a people who is grateful for the present reality of Christ in our lives today and at the same time expectant for your return. We love you, God, and thank you for all that you provide in Jesus' name. Amen.